Well, I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Let's join together in prayer. Father, we want for you to be praised. You are worthy of praise, adoration, and worship. We recognize that we are yours. You have purchased us with the precious blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to a day when your kingdom is in its fullness present. We look forward to the day when our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is ruling and reigning every facet of your creation. We pray, Father, you'd help us now as we consider your word, that we would recognize your awesome plan and purpose in writing the scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Picture yourself sitting on some rocks in Narragansett near the ocean. You're sitting there watching the waves of the ocean come in and the waters go out. And you're seeing the beauty of this scene. And you're sitting there with your Bible. And a couple walks up to you. And they tell you, my neighbor just gave us a Bible. And it's really just really overwhelming to us. It's, it's, we don't really know how to start. We don't know what it's about. We don't really know how to even dive into this. What, what is the Bible about? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? See, our, our young people would answer that very simply and very much correctly. Whereas we can tend to complicate that question and ultimately answer incorrectly. Maybe you might say to them, well, I'm going to use an acronym. This will help you for sure. Bible, basic instruction before leaving earth. Maybe that's your thing that you want to describe to them what the Bible is about. Or maybe you call it, well, the Bible's a roadmap for life. Or maybe you might say, the Bible's like an instruction manual. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think, how many people like to read owner's manuals? (laughs) Now let's take a survey. The last time you bought a car, when was the last time you read this owner's manual from front to back? Yeah, there are, there are a few odd people around. My wife raised her hand, so I wasn't talking about you, brother. So, so maybe there are a few odd people around. Or you bought a lawnmower and you read the owner's manual from front to back. Who does this? Not many. But there are some special sorts. But is that what the Bible's about? Is the Bible an owner's manual or a road map or simply basic instruction before leaving life? What are you going to tell them the Bible's about? You you need to know the answer to this, friends. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a a survey through the scriptures. And it'll be some work for you. So don't don't think I'm just telling you a story this morning. We're going to work through our scriptures. Now, maybe you're not comfortable navigating through the Bible. I want you to really just ratchet your attention up and listen because you'll get lost if you're just trying to find Ezekiel and 
all the different books we're going to look at. So if, if you're not comfortable navigating through the Bible, listen, maybe write some notes down of some passages you might want to consider. We need to know what the Bible is about. If someone asks us what it's about, we need to be able to tell them. They need to be able to hear it in a way that they can understand. You should know so that they can know what the Bible is about. We're in Genesis chapter 1, please. And we want to start reading in verse 26. We have the creation account. First, the big picture in chapter 1. Chapter 2 gives us the slow-mo just on day 6, talking about God creating man. But as he comes to this conclusion of chapter 1, when he gives us the overview of creation, he says this about his creation of man in verse 26 and following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, A few important clues that we have here at the beginning of the Bible record about God's plan. About what the Bible is about. It's about a God who creates everything out of nothing. And as the crowning jewel of His creation, He creates man, both male and female. And He imprints upon male and female His very own image. The image of God implanted upon man. And with that image of God, they were to to demonstrate throughout all of God's created order, God's dominion, God's rulership. So God, dwelling with man, imprinting His image on man, so that man would then have dominion over everything God created, pointing them, man and beast, and everything around them, to see that God is the ultimate ruler. That's... That's how the Bible story starts. What's interesting and sad is that somewhere along the way, this ultimate plan was interrupted. What we notice is as God's image bearers, Adam and Eve, they had unhindered, unbridled, beautiful fellowship with God. Take a look at chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verses 15 and 16. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. In other words, I'm going to have you go in there and I'm going to have you work this thing. I'm going to give you authority over this garden. And what you're going to do is you're going to take care of it. And you can eat, you can eat any of it, except not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You leave that one alone. God gives man dominion. In full fellowship... God says, Adam and Eve, you take care of what I've made. Now look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Genesis. Beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We can pause here. Prior to this event in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, on a regular course, in, in a wonderful way, fellowshiped with God. God's presence was real and alive with them. God walked with them. But when they chose to obey their flesh, when they chose to obey Satan, when they chose their way instead of God's way, instead of God controlling or being the one who exercised dominion in them and through them, they chose to take that dominion at their own discretion and do with that dominion what they wanted. And they listened to the, the lies, the half-truths of Satan. Was there some truth in what Satan said? You'll know good and evil? It's true. Their eyes were opened. They did know good and evil. And you know what they chose from that day forward? They chose evil far more regularly than good. So God plants his image upon man. And God offers to administrate his world through them. Man chooses to follow the ways of Satan. To rebel against God. To choose his own way. And so that fellowship that was offered by God has now been distorted. Now, fast forward to the end of the story. Not Genesis 50. Revelation chapter 21, please. Revelation chapter 21. We start the biblical story off with the concept that God creates everything perfectly. Everything is perfect in God's creation. God makes male and female. And they're perfect in every way. He gives them His presence. And He gives them a task. The task was to demonstrate God's dominion over the earth. At the end of the Bible story, in chapter 21, please look with me at the first five verses of chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, 
and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. When we come here to the end of the Bible story, we have God remaking the heaven and the earth, and God being present with his people. Look at chapter 22. Now we read this earlier. Another glimpse of this new creation that God has made. Verse 1 of Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. We read the last phrase there of verse 5. And they shall reign forever and ever. The word there, reign, has that idea of dominion. So at the beginning of the Bible record, we have God present with His people. And He gives them a charge to, to offer dominion and to, to reign over what God had made and to declare God's dominion over what God had made. At the end of the biblical record, what we have is God making everything new and everything's perfect again and God giving man two things, His presence and a responsibility. The responsibility is to reign with Him. And what is that? It's the idea of dominion. So at the beginning and the end of the biblical record, what we have is this. God imprints His image on His children. God wants to be present with His children. And God wants His children to exercise dominion over what He has made. It's at the beginning and it's at the end. The the story of the Bible is a story of God dwelling with His people declaring His glory and His right over what He's made. That's the Bible story. Now, what we know about this story is that there's some stuff in between Genesis 1 and Revelation 21. Right? Now, when when you write a, a good essay, you give your idea at the front and you give your idea at the end so that people know what you're talking about. It's called an introduction and a conclusion. Well, the Bible has an introduction and a conclusion. We just read it. Everything that takes place in between, in one way or another, is connected to this grand theme of God exercising His dominion through His people as He's present with them. But what we have here, and we we already read the Genesis 3 account, with the introduction of sin, we have a disruption in God's perfect design. An interruption. God's image on man? Let me ask you a question. As you walk down the street and you meet person after person, how many of them remind you of God? How many of their thoughts, words, and deeds remind you of God? How many of them are surrendered to the glory of God? This is the natural way. The natural way is different from God's plan. There's been an interruption. While all men still have an element of the image of God, we would call that a marred image, right? God's image is not fully reflected in man. So man's relationship with God 
We'll also note man's relationship with animal kind and man's relationship with the earth all changed based upon this introduction of sin. So in essence, from the loss of unbridled, unhindered fellowship with God until the resumption of that unbridled, unhindered fellowship with God, there is a lot going on in the Bible and it's going to tell us about the effects of that broken fellowship. And it's going to talk about God's unwavering pursuit. God's unwavering pursuit of claiming a people for himself upon whom his image will be fully demonstrated, through whom he can have perfect fellowship, and through whom he can rule everything he's made. This is what we have in the scriptures. It's a story of God pulling people like us out of our own disastrous way, placing us into his family, giving us his presence, and allowing us the opportunity to to express his dominion and his glory throughout what he's created. Now, I'm going to make lots of references. Again, you can jot some things down. But I want you to follow this, this story. Because the Bible is not a book with a whole bunch of abstract concepts all strung together. That is not what the Bible is. And that, unfortunately, is the way many people read the Bible. The Bible is a story of God's glory through the work of Jesus Christ. And so what we want to notice is that as we're navigating our way through the scriptures, it's pointing us to this theme. When David penned Psalm 8, now you'll remember some things in in Psalm 8, one of the statements that will come to your mind, uh, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That's one of the the statements in Psalm 8. But one of the things that God says there as uh, as he writes of Uh, man's pre-fall dominion. He declares that God crowned him, man, God crowned him with glory and honor. And it says in verse 6, he gave him dominion over the works of his hands. This is one of the things that Psalm 8 tells us. Well, isn't that what, what Genesis 1 was talking about? Yes. Isn't that what Revelation 22 brings back to our attention? That God has given man this opportunity to rule and reign with him, to have dominion over everything he's made? It is. And so right in the middle of the record, we have a a confirmation of this concept. But one thing we'll also note, when the New Testament writers in Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews, when he makes reference to Psalm 8, he tells us this, he makes this statement. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. He quotes Psalm 8. Remember, God crowns him with glory and honor. And that that he would demonstrate dominion over all the earth. But in Hebrews 2, God wants to give us this, this understanding. Well, that was the plan. That was the design before the fall. And right now, as of yet, Hebrews chapter 2, that dominion is not, is not completed. So there's some unfinished business, is what Hebrews is telling us. Unfinished business. Paul writes of God's creation. Take a look at at Romans chapter 8. This is a familiar passage to many of us. Romans chapter 8. I told you I was going to exercise you. You have to think through this the entire time. But I'm telling you, when you're done, if you will think with me through this entire hour, What I'm telling you is, when someone asks you what the Bible is about, you will be able to, with confidence, give them a very simple answer. You won't have to walk them through all these passages. I would not recommend it. It's a little bit complicated. But we're students, right? We're students of the Word. So we're going to work our way through it so we don't just have this pat answer that we don't ourselves believe in. 
We're working ourselves through the biblical text so we can have confidence about what the Bible is about so that when someone asks us, we can say, yes, here's what the Bible is about. We can say it simply, truthfully, and with great clarity. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, what we want to notice here is that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes of God's creation, groaning. Groaning. What does that mean? Well, it's not happy. That's what that means. Now, when you groan... It means you're not happy about what someone did, or you're not happy about how you feel. Like this morning when I got out of bed, I got up and I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I thought this was going to feel better by today. You, you all have these problems from time to time, whether you exercise some muscle that you weren't used to exercising, or you hurt yourself in some way, or someone was punching you in the face, whatever the case may be. <laughs> you, 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 don't, you don't feel good today, right? So you groan about it. Well, the creation itself groans. Take a look here at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered, will be delivered, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now, again, we're just cutting right into it, to, to this concept, because what we want to see is, when sin was introduced into the world, a number of problems immediately took place. First and foremost, that image-bearing was marred. Because the image-bearing has been marred, the fellowship with God has been marred. Additionally, God cursed the ground. God also changed the way that animals and humans related. See, man was to exercise dominion over them, and and the the animal kind, they they would surrender to that dominion. Not so any longer. Try to corner a lion. Give it a shot. Try try to to chase down a Bengal tiger and say, hey, you need to submit to me right now. It's not going to work out very well for you. There are many other kinds of animals. They may not be as ferocious, but just as deadly Things have changed because of the introduction of sin. And so we have this problem. Man's relationship with God, man's image-bearing, man's dominion over what God has given, the the earth itself and the animals. All of these have have been changed. What I want to talk about for a couple of minutes, as we, again, we're working our way through, we're studying. Don't tune out on me. I know this seems a little complex. It's not complex when you just follow it through. When sin entered into the world, man's relationship with animals changed. I want you to turn, please, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11 for a moment. Isaiah 11. God doesn't give us a lot of information about how Adam and Eve related to the animals, other than they were supposed to exercise dominion over them. We also know that Adam named all of these different species. And I don't think he was running while he was doing it. Because he had authority over them. And they, as God's creation, submitted to that authority. When sin came, that whole relationship changed. Now, you don't go up to a a black bear and say, Hey, how you doing? You're so cute. I love black bears. You don't do that. You wouldn't be very smart to do that. Some people, when they go to the safaris, they like try to feed the black bears. Bad news. They don't feed the animals, it tells you. Why? They, they'll eat your hand right off and just think, hey, thank you for that. That was excellent. They don't have that, that surrender. But there's a day coming, friends, when that'll be different. 
Take a look at Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 6. This is referring to when the rod from the stem of Jesse, that's code for Jesus the Messiah, when Jesus the Messiah comes and reigns on the earth, look at verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Is that a little different than now? What would happen if the wolf was hungry and the lamb was there? Lunch, breakfast or supper, snack, whatever you want to call it. This is not how it goes. But when the Lord Jesus rules and reigns on the earth and the creation is freed from the the bondage that is currently under, this, this will all change. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them. In other words, you'll know that these animals are tamed and under authority because you'll even let your child go and and have a little lion for a pet and say, oh, this is so cute. You'd never do that today. What's going to happen between then and now? Well, well, God is going to do something because he's going to make all things new. Back to the, the created order. Back to when man bears fully God's image and God's presence is with them forever and man exercises a dominion that points to the glory of God again. This is what God had in mind. This is what God planned and this is what's going to happen because everything God plans, He fulfills. This isn't like, oh man, I didn't plan on it going this way. This, oh, what will I do now? The Bible tells us that God intended to send His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross far before He even breathed out that first statement to create the heavens and the earth. So God's not taken surprise. We can go on. It says in verse 7, The cow and the bear shall shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want to point, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What does that mean? Man now is exercising that full dominion that points to the glory of God. Everything in God's created order will know who is king. See, this is the fullness of God's plan. A little further, please, as we consider man's relationship with the earth. Take a look back in Genesis chapter 3. Now we remember, Adam and Eve chose to disobey the order from God, which was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then, when they did that, there was an immediate response of guiltiness. Guilt. They they noticed that they were naked, so they covered themselves. And then, when God came to see them, instead of going out to meet God with joy in their hearts and have unbridled, unhindered fellowship with Him, they hid themselves. And God called about the garden. And we see this interaction. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of, the, uh, of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now I want to pause here for a second. This isn't God saying, Oh, I didn't know that. Some, there are theologians called open theists. They think that God didn't know and that God doesn't know the end. So 
That's not what this is. This, what this is saying is God is talking to Adam so Adam will give some answers and understand really what has happened. Did, who told you? Did you eat of the knowledge uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the tree that I told you not to eat from? Let's go a little further. Verse 12, and the man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. What a coward. Guys, don't be this coward. Adam blamed two people that day. He blamed his wife and he blamed God. You, you gave her to me. This is your fault. What a coward. We need to own up, friends, when we choose our own way and it results in devastation. We need to own up and say, yeah, I did it. You're right. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, a little less offensive, still not taking responsibility. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your seed, serpent seed, and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Isn't that sweet? You're going to desire your husband. No, 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 no. No, No, that would be sweet if it was just really saying you'll, you'll love your husband. But what it's saying is your desire will be to rule over your husband. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Well, that, that goes really well a lot of times, right? How does that go, ladies, when your husband tries to dominate you? Is there a proper context in which there can be headship in the home, leadership in the home? Of course there is. But how about when, when someone abuses that authority? How does that go? Pretty, pretty poorly. And so we're seeing the consequence of their sin. Verse 17 now. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You know what he's saying here? When you go to till the ground, it's not going to cooperate with you. Anyone ever try to take care of a garden? What do you have to deal with, friends? Weeds, animals, problems, the nutrients of the soil sometimes can be taken out if it's used, the same soil is used time after time. There's all kinds of problems. Why? Because the, the earth, the ground itself has been cursed because of sin. It's called a sin-cursed world we live in. But you know what? There's a day coming. There's a day coming when that will be made right. When this old earth will be made new. And I want to point that out to you, please, in just a couple of passages. Take a look at Ezekiel Chapter 34. Now again, we're trying to figure out this, this theme of the Bible. 
And so we're, we're digging in a little bit to find out what is going on. How can we be sure that the theme of the Bible is God's presence among His people who have His image upon, upon them, who then exercise dominion over everything God has made so that God will be glorified? How, how can we know that this is the theme? Well, here again, we're, we're looking at what happened as a result of sin and what God does to reverse that problem. In Ezekiel 34, beginning please in verse 25. Ezekiel 34, 25. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, now the word there is Adam, Adam, and it means mankind. You are mankind, and I am your God, says the Lord God. You know what he just told us? Wild beasts are gone. And the fields will yield plenteously. The trees will yield their fruit. Each one in its season. I will bring showers of blessing. When is all this going to take place? Look at verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. My servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I the Lord will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I the Lord have spoken. He's talking about the David's greater son. He's talking about the David who came out of David, who fulfills everything that David was supposed to be. He's talking about Jesus. When Jesus comes and rules and reigns. When Jesus is the one shepherd over every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue, all of the curse upon the ground will be eradicated, will be lifted, and the earth will yield forth plenteously. Well, these are good things. It's good that animals won't want to kill us any longer. It's good we won't have to feel afraid if a tiger encounters us. This is good. It's good that we won't have to go out to a, to a field and, and, and work against the ground because it's working against us. We won't have to deal with that. It's wonderful. But let me tell you about a, a consequence of, of God's working that's far greater than that. Man's relationship with God will be restored. A real permanent solution to man's problem with God comes through Jesus. Let's take a look at a couple of passages. Take a look at 1 John chapter 1 for a moment. From the very beginning, God had intention of fellowshipping with His people. He fellowshiped with Adam and Eve in the garden. That fellowship was followed up with fellowship with Enoch and Noah and Abraham. He fellowshiped with 
Isaac and Jacob, with Moses, with Joshua, with Samuel, with David. He fellowshiped with all these people because God's desire is to fellowship with those that are His. In 1 John chapter 1, we want to encounter the problem, and then as we go through, we'll encounter the solution. First of all, in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 5, the Bible says this, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is what? God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, sin had an impact upon Adam and Eve and everyone that has come since them. Sin distorts God's image implanted upon man. And when that image is distorted, the fellowship is not there. God didn't go anywhere. He's the same one in the same place as He always has been. What has happened is we become sin-marked and we can't fellowship with Him. There's a roadblock that's in the way. This is the fellowship that Adam and Eve had and then lost. They enjoyed unbridled, unhindered fellowship with God, but because of their sin, they lost it. Yet God has made provision to reconstitute that fellowship. We already read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that God says, I'm going to send someone. He didn't say it this way, but essentially he's saying, I'm going to send someone who's going to bruise or crush the head of the serpent. That's the Messiah, friends. Come and crush the head of Satan. Satan is opposed to the will of God. Jesus would come and fulfill the will of God. Why? That we might have fellowship with him. A little later in that same context, in in verse 21, it tells us that God made sheep's clothing for Adam and Eve. It doesn't give us all the record there. What did God say to them when he was doing this? Where did the sheepskin come from? Did he say, let there be sheepskin, and there was sheepskin? No. How How did Adam and Eve's son... Abel know how to sacrifice the firstling of his flock because God demonstrated it to them. Because of sin, there must be a blood sacrifice payment. And so God provided that blood sacrifice payment for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, to temporarily remove their guilt so they could then have fellowship with him again. Now God is in the business of doing this. The biblical record provides ample opportunities for us to see an evidence of God fellowshipping with people. I already mentioned the, those individuals that God had fellowship with, but what about this one? God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and he tells them to make him a tabernacle. And he gives them a purpose statement. This is why I want to make this tabernacle. This is why I want you to make this tabernacle. Listen to what it says. And let them, Israel, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. You see this? God saying, I want to dwell with my people. I want to dwell with my people. The same concept is reiterated when the the temple was about to be built in 1 Kings chapter 6. I want to dwell with my people. What we know... 
though, is there's something special beyond those initial concepts of God pointing us to the fact that he wants to dwell with us because there was one specific dwelling that, that changed the rest of them. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Bible tells us that God not only came to dwell with them in the the form of the pillar of fire by night, in the form of the pillar of cloud by day, not just when, when the temple was there in Jerusalem, but God sent His very Son, who is the very demonstration of Himself. God came and dwelled among His people. Do you remember after the Lord Jesus died, was buried, rose again, He walked among His people, declaring to them by many infallible proofs that he was the resurrected Christ. And then he ascended. Do you remember that? He ascended. That's in Acts chapter 1. He says, wait here. Wait here. Tarry here. Not many days from now, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And on Pentecost, back in that early portion of the first century, God sent his Spirit. And the Bible tells us that every believer, everyone that comes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in them. I want to read that to you. If you want to follow me over there, take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. So we have God walking with Adam and Eve, God walking with Enoch, God walking with Noah, God walking with Abraham, God walking with, with Jacob and Isaac and David and Samuel and uh, Joshua and Moses. God is, is revealing Himself to them. He wants to dwell with them. God dwelling among His people in the tabernacle and temple. Then God comes in His fullness as the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see His glory. And then when Jesus departs, God sends us someone that would be with us forever. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, it says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Well, if you don't understand what that's saying, it simply means this. When a person comes to see that Jesus Christ is God, when a person comes to see that Jesus died in their place to pay for their sin, and that Jesus' righteousness can be theirs if they'll believe on Him. When a person comes to that place, God sends His Spirit who will dwell in them every day for the remainder of their lives. You call that God's presence, friends. God wants to dwell with His people, but now, in this context, in His people. It's really cool. We see an appearance It's really cool there's a a pillar. It's really cool there's a temple that represents God's glory. And then it's really great there's Jesus, God in the flesh. It's beautiful. But let me tell you something, friends. As a believer in Jesus Christ right now, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And God's presence is with you every day for the rest of your life. There's nothing that matches that. This is God's plan to dwell with His people. There's a day coming when this will be realized in its fullest possible manner. Let me read one passage to you and have you turn to the book of Revelation again. Revelation 21. 
while you're turning there, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible talks about Jesus setting up a kingdom and some of the ramifications of that setting up of that kingdom. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen carefully. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Listen. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. What a glorious promise. God bringing about His plan and taking those who are His to be with Him forever. When we get to the book of Revelation, you can see portions of this. In Revelation 19, we see the Lord Jesus Christ coming and the armies of heaven robed in His righteousness with Him. That's the righteous saints who have the righteousness of Christ enrobing them. And we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and it says, On His thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We look in Revelation chapter 20 and we see the Lord Jesus ruling and reigning and God's people. Actually, I told you to turn to 21. Take a look at chapter 20. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 4. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or the image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. So we have this concept of, of God in his presence and rulership, dominion. We have it again. It keeps coming back to us. In Revelation 21 and verse 4. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. God's presence. God's presence. It means the same thing again in chapter 21. Look down at verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, speaking again of this new Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall uh, shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what he's telling us is there's a day coming where God's plan of being present with his people, them having a real life, actual image of God imprinted on them in its fullness, and then the opportunity to rule and and exercise dominion with him, pointing to God's glory forever. This is the story of the Bible. But you know what? It's, it's not able to be done like this except for the work of Jesus Christ. 
See, God didn't say, well, I'm just going to uh, put these people here and, and do these things, and, and I know they're going to sin, and, and then I'm just going to forgive their sin with no cost. I'm going to forgive their sin, and I'm just going to do what I was going to do anyway. That's not how it works. God caused His Son to bear the weight of our sin. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, list the people all through time. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. At the very heart, friends, of the biblical story is the fact that Jesus is the one through whom we have life. Jesus is the one through whom God fulfills His plan. So, someone asks you a question. Here's their question. What is the Bible about? The Bible is about a God who cares enough about you so He can have you as one of His people, so He can have fellowship with you and keep you with Him forever. The Bible is a book that tells you how God brings that to pass. God sacrificed His own Son so that you might have this fellowship with Him forever. Listen, so many people, they they look at the Bible and it's a list of rules. And here's what they say about rules. I I don't want any of that. And we're not changing what the Bible is so that they're going to like it. What we're doing is telling them what the Bible really is. The Bible is not a listing of rules. The Bible is a story where God tells you He loves you. And He loves you so much He was willing to sacrifice His Son in your place that you might have life. This is the story of the Bible. Someone comes up to you and asks you this question, you need to tell them, the Bible is about Jesus dying in my place that it might have life. The redemption of mankind, God's chief creation, should always take center stage. Man is the only creation that can bear God's image. Man is the only one that God entrusted with the dominion over God's created heavens and earth. The redemption provided through the Lord Jesus results in a return to God's original design of unbridled, unhindered fellowship between God and His people. It only takes place through Christ. Now, what, why did I even bring this up? Well, first of all, we need to know the Bible story. There is a second reason, however. Wherever you find yourself in the Scriptures, whatever book you're reading, whatever section you're reading, what you and I need to do is to be looking. Say, okay, how is this telling me this story? How is this telling me about God having dominion over His creation, through His people, by His presence. How is this telling us? In the coming months, we're going to be studying the books of Micah and Habakkuk. And what you're going to notice is there's a lot of judgment going on. There's a lot of judgment. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the purpose of all of this judgment why judgment? Why not just love and sweetness and, and sweet teddy bears and, and, and flowers and, and chocolates? Why not all this happy stuff? Why talk about judgment? The reason, friends, is because when we deviate from God's design, we're not fulfilling the design for which He's made us. It causes problems. And God's, God's 
plan isn't being fulfilled. And God brings about judgment, not simply because he's an angry God that can't tolerate disobedience. God brings about judgment to get his people in the right place so that his people will know him, so that his people will experience his presence, so his people will then represent him where they go. So we're going to be looking at Micah and and Habakkuk, and we're going to have to do this hard work of saying, how does this relate? Why is this book in the Bible? It's to show us. It's to show us that God, in the face of our rebellion, is still willing to reach into mankind and redeem us and to rescue us. Wherever you're reading, how does it relate? What is this book of the Bible, this section of the Bible pointing to you about God's story. And I want to add one layer to this, friends. I want, to, I want to really make this personal to you. So maybe you faded out because this was too complicated for you. Pause for a second from your sleepness. I want to ask you this question. How does your personal story fit into this theme of the Bible? How is it that God through Christ has made an impact on you so that you can experience his presence, have a restored image of God, and then exercise dominion over that which God has given you privilege to point people to Jesus Christ's glory and to God's glory. How has this, how is your story fitting into this? You see, because It's not just about corporate things. It's not just about the big grand narrative. It's about individual lives, individual people, individual churches, individual groups fitting into this story. Does your story fit into this? Does God dwell in you? Does God dwell in you? See, God doesn't dwell in every creature that that walks on the face of the earth. The image of God has been marred on man by sin. So in order for God to dwell in us, there must be a point in time we've recognized our sin and we've seen that Jesus Christ is the solution for that sin. Because instead of me hanging on a cross, instead of me spending eternity separate from God, Jesus stood in my place. He hung on a cross and God placed all of my sin on Jesus. God poured his wrath out for my sin on Jesus so that I would never face condemnation. When I trust Jesus as my savior, the spirit dwells in me. I'll never face condemnation. My question for you is, do you have this hope? Do you have this assurance that the spirit dwells in you? That the image of God is restored in you? And that you can then live a life that demonstrates God's dominion in this age. You see, these concepts apply to us. How, do you, how does your story line up? Now, if your answer to your personal story is, yeah, it fits perfectly into that narrative. I was lost and in sin, and I was separated from God, and headed for hell, and I recognized Jesus as my Savior, I trusted Him, and he has, he has redeemed me, and I have the Spirit dwelling in me, then what I would say to you from this is, listen, exercise dominion. What does that mean? Let the King into every part of your life. Home life, 
work life, public life, private life, church life. But maybe there's someone in here that has not experienced this joy of knowing Jesus. Someone in here that's never come to the place where they recognize that they have a rescue from feeling alone and that God will fill them with his presence from that day and forevermore. Maybe there's someone that that doesn't know this. I want to tell you, before you leave today, friend, before you leave today, come to the front, not during the song. When the song's over, we say our last amen, people start leaving. You come to the front, and we'll tell you how you can be part of this story, how your story can align with the Bible story. Don't leave without settling this. You see, the Bible is a great book. It's God's word. It's alive and powerful. It has one theme. God wanting to be in fellowship with his people. Are you one of his people? Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we come rejoicing in you. We come rejoicing that Jesus paid it all, that we have life through his name. We come rejoicing that you reign supreme in heaven and on earth. And what we want to do is we want to shine a light on that. We want others to see your glory and your dominion. We want the knowledge of you to cover this land. And so we pray that you'd help us not to faint in the day of diversity, but rather to stand in the power of the Spirit, putting on the whole armor of God, that we might shine a light on your glory, that people might come to know Jesus as their Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.